you like conversation on a variety of topics? Feel like no one wants to talk about the things that interest you? Tired of only hearing the same political, sports, or catastrophe talk? Yeah, we feel that way too. Join two high-functioning geeks as they discuss just about anything under the sun. We can't tell you what we'll be talking about each week because we don't know where our brains will take us. It will be an interesting conversation, though, so hang on and join us. Here comes the Relentless Geekery. Let's try this. Okay. Much better. So, tech, I was telling my cousin, I've had so many tech issues (laughs) that I'm, like, ready to just give up and go shovel horse stalls and call it a living. (laughs) It's been one of those weeks because, so he got out his 3d printer on Sunday. He got up in the morning. He said, Oh, I'm going to put the printer together. I'll call you if I have problems. So like 12, 1230, he sends me a picture. Hey, look, it's printing four hours and he has it printing and it's like halfway done. And I'm like, shut up. I'm not talking to you any longer. Because you've had days worth of what's funny. What, why isn't the temperature correct? And stuff like that. Oh so man! I, I tried. I, I said, I can't let my cousin beat me. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I sat down and I just started messing again. The same issues though. I did change from the default uh, bed to the glass bed. And I adjusted temperatures in various combinations that I hadn't done before. And I put it back on the default, cleaned the bed real well. It printed fine. And I was like, are, are you kidding me? So I said, okay, wait. So I, I hit it. I cleaned the bed again, hit it again. It got halfway through and then screwed all up. And I tried four more and it didn't work. I mean, honestly, part of what makes me worry about that kind of thing, 3D printing or whatever, is I don't think we're early adopters. It's been around for a long time, but it sure seems to be that there's, it's like being an auto mechanic from before and up and now everything is solid state. Everything is, you can't listen to it, feel it, look at right. it figure it out you have no insight you have no leverage points for well it probably is this what's my first guess we've talked before about our our troubleshooting skills because after you've seen a lot your your instinct your stored knowledge leads you to what's the first thing that i should try based on what i know so far what's the thing that i can try that will cut the solution set in half so that i can dismiss a whole bunch of possibilities by seeing whether this works or not and unfortunately, you're at the start of building that knowledge base. Right. And so when it screws up, it's why. It's exactly the same, so far as I can tell, from <laughs> yes. the previous run. And yet, some temperature weirdness. I, I changed the plate from one material to another. How? Why in the world? Like, and you ask yourself, why should that matter? You know what I mean? If I can figure this out, right. now, I got to go with something vitreous instead of cord or something like that. But instead, it's just... I'll keep trying things until the magic combination happens. And, and the weird, the, the, the really frustrating part gets to be that the company doesn't really have good help and insight. I go into the control panel and I'm guessing what some of the settings are and do. Uh, I go into the temperature and I change it. And then I go to hit print and it goes down to the default. I just told it here to not do that. Why, you know, is it- not retaining the setting. You give me the yeah. ability to control it, but not really. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, or or am, am I thinking it's supposed to control it for this, but it's really some other reason. I have no idea. That's the problem. And then of course, I got everybody in the ha- other household walking by. Did you try and shut it off? Turn it off. Oh, my God. Helpful snarks. Yeah. That are, 
looks, you know, it's I know that like you said it's the kit version, right? It's the, yeah. the starter version where, like you said, there's no technical support. The company creates a reasonable product, but there's no next step. And unfortunately, that's exactly what you need. Oftentimes, when, when they first started to have Linux and various different distributions, and so much one of the big differentiators wasn't the, the quality of the software, if you will, or whatever it included. It was, is there a way that I could get a human being in a chat or online in case something goes wrong? Because diving into Appendix D of a Linux book is just so freaking frustrating, <laughs> especially if you already know a lot. But it's, I, I don't know, I understand your frustration. And I'm really sorry because I so much want this to be a joyful experience. It's the coolest thing in the world. I can create. I can print 3D things. How cool is yes. that? I, I got the it's like a but, Star Trek thing. And we're very similar that I understand by running into this problem, that's how I'm learning. I'm figuring, but I'm not with this because I'm not learning. Well, why did it print? If I type code and I get an error and I realize, oh, I don't have a semicolon at the end, or I forgot my closing bracket. Okay, I learned from that. I do it next time and I'm good. Oh, I put one slash for a comment instead of two. I learned these things. It wouldn't compile. And But this is like, why did it work? Well, okay, here's the settings. I'll do it again. Now it didn't work. But that's not helping. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's, let's wax nerdy for a moment. So I started my career back in the mainframe day. And I, I worked for Arthur Anderson and then Pete Marwick. And especially for Pete Marwick, I worked in an area called the Catalyst Group that did really cool stuff with taking old assembler code or spaghetti COBOL code and making it into a more structured, maintainable version. It would isolate the IO. It would. It really was a, a very, it was a brilliantly done thing by John Delmonico and Jerry Hawkins and others. And I got involved in working on the formatter, for instance. So part of what, one of the best things that I ever did, maybe this, I compare it to, there used to be times where you got to say this. For those who don't code, it isn't always in real time, like basic, where you can change one thing and then run it again. There used to be that there was an entire compile and assemble and a cycle that you had to go through, that there was overhead every time that you made a change. And sometimes you didn't realize that the change you made would cause a whole bunch of changes in what libraries it might grab or something like that. And so it really would take a long time. And so there were some things where the amount and depending on whether you were in a time-sharing environment or on your own dedicated home PC, the experience was totally different. <laughs> if you were in a time-sharing environment, there's any number of times that you would set a job off at the end of the day, knowing that it was going to take all night to compile and run, and you'd get your results in the morning. If you screwed anything up and came back to find out that you had done something wrong with the JCL, the job control language, that was the thing that told the machine what how to run it. It was like, I just wasted a day. I lost that night. I, I, it was very frustrating. So one of the coolest things that I ever did, we had a big client of the Aetna, you know, Aetna Insurance. And I, I, I lived and worked out in Hartford for three months. I shouldn't say lived, I stayed in the cell. But I wrote a thing that would make sure that it created correct JCL. You couldn't put a slash in the wrong column. You couldn't forget an opening or closing bracket or parenthesis. The length of everything and, and, and the number of commas all that stuff was handled so that there was never a time, like instead of writing JCL, it would ask you questions, fill in these various different blanks. It would give you feedback as to that's too long. That is only alphanumeric versus numeric. All those kinds of things that used to be SOC 7s and SOC. The homebrew debugger, uh, exactly. code analyzer. If you will, a pre-debugger to make pre sure that the information that I collected was going to be correct. And then by slotting it in with my little formatter, it guaranteed a good run. And that turned out to be one of the things that when I brought that home and said, hey, you know, kids, look what I did. 
everybody glommed onto it. A good friend named H. Hussman, first name, really only the letter H, not nice. an abbreviation, etc. He like became the, the master of that and maintained it. And we actually made it into, from what I understand, like a product that we included with our structured retrofit and our path view services. And often the thing that had people walking, smiling out of the conference room was like, did you see that cool JCL thing in the chain? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so that's the way of calling it all back to this. Nowadays, everything seems to be an interactive development environment where you really can do, um, they got smart early on, Apple and Microsoft and various different developers. How can I do this so that it's always the incremental change, like a spreadsheet, instead of recalculating everything in the spreadsheet, when you hit recalc, it's aware of what you've changed and it does the minimal recalc to get you to the new thing. And it just is by, by tenfold, 50-fold, cut the amount of time that you had to put into these things just waiting for a result. And so that gets back to this. It, it must be very weird to be like, okay, this is going to take four hours to print. And so I could set it off at midnight and then I'll come in the morning. It'll be back here. But then if something happens at 2.30 in the morning while you're not watching it like a hawk, then it's, I, I, am I going to wait four hours during the day when I want to, you know what I mean? It's, it's that same going back to that weird overnight cycle and it's, I just don't want to do that anymore. I want me to always be in control and always be able to tweak and fix and understand. And instead, there's that frustrating, and here's hoping, and then you push the toboggan down the hill. And you know that there's no stopping that freaking toboggan until it gets all the way to the bottom. And I, I'm in this weird place with things. And same with Linux. Um, and Linux has come a long way, but still, there are times. But I'm in this weird place where I remember some of the fun was working on this stuff and getting it to work, not actually printing 3D things, just getting it to work. Once it got to work, I was like, eh, that type of thing. Right. And Linux the same way, figuring out the commands step-by-step step and what's wrong now, how to fix it. Now I know this system, but exactly. I've also hit that point where, it's, yeah, exactly. yep. you know, and I, I'm like, I'm like 51. I've been doing this for 30, 40 years-ish. I, I kind of just want it to work and I want to relax and enjoy things. I don't want to hammer on it anymore. It's quite, this, please, it's not meant to start the war. 30 years ago, <laughs> one of the reasons that I often referenced Macintosh systems instead of Windows was because they just worked. When I wanted to be productive, I would just sit down and use Mac stuff because it had taken care of all the driver issues, taken care of all the fonts were missing. It really just had done all kinds of things to not shelter me from it from where I couldn't influence if I wanted to, but it made smart choices where when I plugged in a printer, it talked to each device and made sure that it wasn't going to collide based on what port and all that stuff. And Windows, it took a long time for Windows to get there because they had right. legacy versions that couldn't even support that kind of stuff. They didn't have ports that had any multi-directional chatter. It was out. You sent things out of port, but there was like, maybe it would sense, yes, I'm plugged in, but there was like, there wasn't a chip in the printer yet. Uh, an old dot matrix printer. There were no smarts built into it. You know what I'm trying to say? I got really spoiled. And then whenever I had to go back to those days of, oh my God, I'm going to have to embed printer control codes in this header to make sure that it knows I want to change it from landscape to portrait or the other. (laughs) Wow, this just seems so, this is a solved problem, but it's not solved everywhere. There's still all kinds of bombs out there in the world waiting for me to walk on them. (laughs) And it's interesting looking back historically that way, because that's a pro of Apple back then compared to Windows, but it's totally different systems now, both ways. And the, there's also cons both ways, even back then. Yes, Apple, like you've said a million times, plug it in, it works, it goes. 
but you had this one thing to use and you had that one, but with windows, you had 500 companies and you could choose the exact product with features you wanted. But again, that's the pro. The con of that is then you would have different drivers from that company or somebody else. And you'd have to get those working in it. They updated here, but this one had different features and you like theirs and they weren't updated pros and cons both ways. Whereas Linux now is still playing catch up in a lot of ways. And the biggest thing for me is their interface of use is just not there, not good. You can't grab things and easily, you can't say, I want this program, download it and install it, which you can do on Windows and Mac easily. Here you have to say, what version of Linux do you have? And what version of that version do you have? And we don't work with that. So you have to run these commands to compile it and install it yourself. And, oh, there's an error. You have this different version of this library. There's ways of making that easier. Obviously, two other systems do it. (laughs) Right, right. That that really, when they first started to be installer, as a developer, there were places that created installers that would say, oh, all that stuff that usually you have to do all of your own checking to make sure that what your client has so that you can install the correct version. We'll do all that for you. We have vast libraries of all the different printers and, and wow, everything. The systems, there were often bigger incompatibilities between the various different versions of Windows than there were between Macintosh and Windows. They had standardized on, once PostScript came out and everything was a PostScript or PostScript compatible printer, you didn't have to worry about whether it was Cut, Brother, or Epson or the various different places that just had their own basic control things would work and then a whole bunch of other things would break. Like how it handled fonts or any kind of, you know what, it, I, that's not, sometimes that's interesting. In this case, it was only frustrating that, wow, if anything, it was, okay, what's the one that took the least amount of pain to get to work? If I can encourage people to get an Epson printer, I'm going to do, because they seem to be the ones that have figured out all the pain that people usually go through, and we've eliminated the top 10. Not every one of them, but at least these things that I'm so used to having to troubleshoot everywhere I go, Epson doesn't seem to have as many problems as I mean, it I, it would be when you'd walk into a client and you'd scan around and say, <laughs> oh boy, they're a little older and they're a little, they've not had standardization themselves internally as to what they all have. They've let everybody buy their own. And so if I was going to be installing antivirus software, malware, which kind of operates at a deeper level of the system, you just knew that you had a hundred possibilities of blowing up for no good reason because they had, everybody had their own system. Everybody had, some had been conscientious about keeping their stuff updated, which against malware is one of the first things you learn is get a good provider, but maybe back then it was Norton or McAfee or something like that, but keeping up to date with their virus definitions to be able to detect all the evil stuff was a very important thing. You couldn't install it once and then say, I'm all armored now because from day one, your armor was developing chink. (laughs) And, and, the, is, and the bad guys were really good at probing and putting a little stuff right. in that tank, you know? So. And we, we mentioned that too about the specs. Like people will get the Oculus goggles and then say, it's not working with my computer. Did you read the specs? No, you didn't. And uh, you mentioned that antivirus. The thing that I always would have to shake my head is people are like, well, yeah, I'm protected. I've got seven different antivirus installed. I can tell you why your computer is not running well. Um, and then you look exactly. at it, like, you installed this 10 years ago. It's never been updated. So it doesn't matter. Just Not so much as a business, but often at clients, I had to be out of self-defense, able to get it so that my stuff would work and be able to tell them, this is the environment you're going to have to create so that this cool thing is going to figure out how to, for instance, I did work at Ameritech. We were going to build their cable TV system. 
and I did a whole bunch of stuff with genetic algorithms, that, and, and, but the output came out as Excel spreadsheet. Here's the order in which you should be able to um, bid in various different communities, build these things out, and then the next builds, because you're building the pine cone correctly, you've established your stalks first, and then the branches come after you. And so all of that, of being able to get in and say, this is why you need to be able to have this environment running, it would last one or two people if a game of telephone. They wouldn't hand the spec sheet over. They would say, really would be best if you ran on this. And of course, the guy was like, I'm an HP man, not an IBM man. I'm going to run it on my system. And then HP really was one of the interesting ones that they had done a whole bunch of stuff to transfer things into memory instead of being on the hard drive. So they did a whole bunch of stuff with caching to make it run faster. But if you don't do your caching where it automatically refreshes, then you get old versions lingering. And, and without going into, again, too much detail, it took a while to figure that out. But then to tell a guy exactly what you think is the big benefit of HP is what's screwing things up here because <laughs> I wrote my code that, and it's, let me think about it. It's not really recursive by that meaning. It doesn't call itself, but it makes big assumptions on each time you're starting from a clean palette instead of that there could be anything cached and you're going to bring in potentially an old version, not only of code, but of data. And it shouldn't even be doing that. There shouldn't be any system that allows for when you point at it, you should say, use this new data file. And it shouldn't allow for an older version to be there. So when I, sometimes when I would troubleshoot and say that, they would even, that can't be happening. It's no, it, it sure is. Here, here, <laughs> look at this very specific number, like 98765. It's very distinct, nothing else. It flows through right to here. And it's in the old version, not the new version. So I can prove that it's tagging old data. So anyway. That, oh. <laughs> that, that problem actually uh, sometimes still exists, and I've run into this with web stuff, because you get companies like Cloudflare that cache a website, and I've had some clients where I've run into that, where I'm here, but the server is in Texas, and the website I'm being served from is from Chicago. So I, I push it up, and I put the change in there. And then you hit refresh, it's still the old version in Chicago and it's not working. And until you realize that sometimes, it's no, and you make some more changes and you push that up and okay, now there's my first change, but why is it with this? And you're not, because you know, you're looking at three versions ago. <laughs> exactly. I'll tell you, that's a huge insight for people generally on the web to come to. It, it's wonderful to think of when I do something, I talk directly to Oracle, it comes back to me with information. But nowadays, there's all kinds of traffic handling, IP, big, both physical and uh, virtual devices, cloud flare for security, all kinds of things that are they're in the way, or they're there to actually speed things up. By them having the fastest servers along that particular trunk, they're able to get it so that they can give preference to certain customers, or at least stop the worst of bad stuff from getting out in time. But then that's the whole thing. There is an, an interpolator there that is, you're not getting the direct connection of a uh, what is it? A thousand points of light. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> All talking to each other that you don't. And, and I don't know. You, boy, I haven't wanted to run a trace route, a trace of exactly where the web traffic has gone in a long time, because it's just mad. It's just madness. Because not, uh, I don't know. It's funny. I'm stuttering because I have so much that I want to say about this. Because if you live through some of this, it isn't only that you can show it and prove it, it's that nobody else will care. People will just be like, oh, I don't want to know about that stuff. Just get it to work. But it really, if there's anything that falls on deaf ears, it's that kind of mumbo jumbo magic weirdness that even though you figured out, they think you wasted your time <laughs> yes. as opposed to, wow, you made a breakthrough here and figured out what was wrong. And so 
I want to be the people who are doing this kind of stuff should learn from, I keep hitting refresh. They keep asking me to refresh and I'm causing my own burst of web traffic because your refresh protocols are for crap (laughs) and they're not letting me force this new thing that I uploaded, but it hasn't, it's like a a DNS change and stuff like that. Occasionally there's a big hiccup in the net where one of the DNS servers goes down like a big one from Google or from, and and that's when people first become aware of, it really isn't alanvoltis.com that you're going to. It's one two three dot four five six dot seven eight. You know what I mean? They they don't know how how well, IP and IP six work. They don't know. You know. Oh my God! <laughs> you, you remember all the old cartoons back in the nineties where you they'd be picking on nerds and the nerds would be like spouting out an IPv four address and that's how they would oh go to this site. Uh, one twenty-seven dot, and they would just spout it all out. It's what's that? That's this site. We lived through that, and worse with all the security now and the not tracking. It's harder to sometimes trace things because you get blocks and you have to go through. I, I know the one server I work on. When you access it, you're actually accessing a security server, and then from there you have to get into the real server to get to it. But you have two layers to get through. That's and it right. changed, the IPs are different. So it, it causes issues at, at times if you're not yeah. aware. <laughs> Most people, the only experience they have of that is if they're at home and they use DHCP when they're confined, like I just, you just had to reboot your router. If you have people at home, go into the router and don't just hook it up, but actually look at how can I create my security layer? How can I have it be that I have 999 devices behind the wall that I can address individually? Then I don't want to worry about what did I name the printer again? Was it 22? They want it to be dynamic, DHCP, but then that's where they first get the idea of, wow, and this is it's funny, I don't know that I'm an expert out there. Everything I've learned about this has been through painful self-defense when you have to worry about, so what's the MAC address? What's the, there's all different kinds of ways to deal with how the net addresses things and how to create tunnels so that you can do direct addressing when you need to, but you don't want to do that because that, that what you just said, the possibility of bumping into security or any kind of virtualization will break your attempt because you might be able to penetrate this one place, but the whole net doesn't make those assumptions. You you yeah. can't, when I, that what I've had to do at home, whenever I've had to troubleshoot where something got weird like that, my most common thing has been, can I just go back to, as if I just installed and then redo the steps to get to where everything works, instead of trying to undo something that got changed without my understanding how it did it. I don't have any insight into what's the smallest change that I can make to get me back to working. I really, it's so much black magic that I will be like, I'm going to start over and make sure that what I do is correct each new step of the way. What a, what a weird admission to make for, I really know this stuff. I really think I understand it pretty well, but it gets weird quickly. You know what I mean? You mentioned the router and that's the other tech thing I've been dealing with is my, my, it's a good router. It's a night R7000 from Netgear, which all the six antennas or whatever it is, like a little well, cross. Yes, okay. this only has three, though. It's oh, older, okay. it's seven years old or so. So, okay. it, it, and I got it because it was like top of the line, built for the whole house, etc. And we've just been having issues. And I know Netgear does not always have the best reputation for their OS and their, their updates and stuff. Okay. Hardware yeah. is good, OS isn't always good. And so we've just been having troubles in the house. And at times we have to reboot it sometimes three or four times a day. And so over the weekend, I spent time going through settings and uh, checking the MTU and all the transmission rates and what's ideal and how can I figure that out and 
trying the quality of service. Does that work? Does it help stream things where it's needed and stuff? And even though it's a great router and even though it still works well, what we're running into is when everybody's home on the weekend with two or three devices, their phone, there's so many things on and it can only like address three to five to send through the bandwidth. So the processor is trying to to cache all this stuff and send things through and keep it in an orderly manner. And, and so and sometimes the caching, the time sharing is its own overhead. And so that's yeah. slowing it down more to try to handle all of what's happening. Right. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. then we end up getting, and I haven't seen these very often, but like <laughs> some network storm where just like everything gets shut down because there's so much info bouncing that it can't do anything oh, with. Yeah, um, yeah. So that might be one of those things. It really is worth seven years old is Eon in Routerville. You know, yeah. as we moved from, B to C to G to X. And I hope that isn't even in the right order. They didn't do an alphabetical order. Right, no. And AX is like the new. But so I said, okay, so we've got two choices here. I said, I hate getting rid of tech that still works, but this just isn't working. I said, so we've got two choices. I can either upgrade and get a new router, which will be several hundred bucks. And I looked into the mesh. And because we have so many gamers, the mesh network is less ideal. So we're going to stick with the regular router. Because uh, we talked about that. I didn't realize because I'm not so much a house full of gamers. I've right. never had that experience of talking down because yes. of demand. And it's bouncing the signal. It adds too much ping sometimes. Okay. So yeah. uh, if three or four people are all gaming, it'd probably lock the whole network down. So wow. we're going to stick with the regular router. So I said, we can buy a new router and I'm not getting anything cheap. It's not 89 bucks. This is $400, $500 router. Right. Exactly. Or... We tell some of the kids just to leave and move out. <laughs> That's the two choices right there. Um, so, You're so practical. You're very one of those. One of those will fix it. Actually, both will fix it in different ways. Um, it's a lot cheaper for the second option. But <laughs> so we are very happy. You, Colleen and I, we, like, we we have fiber to the house, and we have actually cables run various different places. So it's not only Wi-Fi. To get to our TV, we actually had a cable come through whenever we watch anything, Netflix, Amazon, et cetera. It's near instantaneous. There's the, the days of lag and, and waiting on anything are gone. Yeah. But having said that, like I said, when we first tried to do, hey, let's get the garage working, you get an idea. Wow, it really doesn't reach that far. I really had to do some changes. And, and it it's, I like where things just work until you strain it a little bit too much. Oh, it'll yeah. be worth it in the new router because it really will be like they yeah. have made big leaps and bounds. The hardware has gotten that much better. The protocols themselves are that much smarter about uh, conflict avoidance and and, uh, all the time sharing and stuff. Very, very cool. And and it's funny you mentioned that too about the streaming because at least one kid has a 4K TV. Now, I know he doesn't watch a lot of 4K because there just really isn't a streaming, but that's something people also don't realize. A 4K TV is literally four times as much streaming data as the regular TVs. And so if you've got like us, we've got several people now. So if we were all trying to stream 4k, it would kill because we don't have fiber out here. It would not handle it. Exactly. That's all all too many pixels. And And that's why 4k hasn't taken off. And that's why you're not doing 4k Oculus streaming with your friends. It's the technology just isn't handling that yet. It's, we have a Samsung Smart TV, and it's coming up on seven years old, if I remember. And I, so it's interesting, seven-year itch. I've become aware that the our, my TV handles various different smart apps, but not everything. And so we regularly Chromecast things we want to watch on um, HBO Max or Disney Plus or not 
because they're not natively supported by Samsung. Whereas anything since 2017, just before, of course, I bought it, after I bought it, 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 it does have native things for that. And so it's, am I going to get a the whole, am I going to stick with Samsung because I like them, but there's also Roku TVs and Apple TVs and things that have different OS. And a lot of it is going to be because the market for providers is fragmenting. I don't want it to be that Roku is only the provider and gathers everything. And then what they get is what I'm limited to. There's a, there's that idea. We talked this about this a little bit, TV sofa type thing. Everything's out there somewhere. And I want to have that app that's going to say, you want to watch? Let's see. The song remains the same, an old Led Zeppelin concert movie. Here it's free, but only free for a month. Here it's for $5 and all that kind of stuff. And I want something that will help me with all those kinds of decisions. Most of the time, I'm like everybody in America. You just sit down, bit, browse around. Oh, this looks good. But there are certain things that I really want to be able to watch. When we're working our way through the AFI top 100 comedies right. of all time, not everybody carries those by any stretch. Some of the comedies are like Adam's Rib from 1940-something. So. I am occasionally doing very specific. And that's when I really want the, please help me get to this with the least amount of hassle and the least amount of money and all that kind of stuff. And I'm shopping for a TV, not so much. Our TV still looks beautiful. It's a big old thing. And it's good, but I want more capabilities. And because the TV is now a computer, it really is that it's fallen a couple steps behind. And even its firmware updates don't give me the whole new Samsung operating system. Right. It doesn't have the chip smarts. It doesn't have the, the amount of memory that I might need. It's not a DVR. There are some things that I'll never come. You just plug in a terabyte hard drive and it's got its own DVR capability. So I could be recording the Olympics and not have to worry about watching them in real time. But hey, I want to watch all those what's coming up the Winter Olympics. Curling that's on at two in the morning for whatever reason. I like curling pants. And so I'm going to, I want to record all these and watch them. We'll see what happens. I, it, it, and TV is, you know, that's not a, like you were saying, there's a magic $300 point that America has for, sure, I can afford that. That's when the VCRs first broke oh, yeah. through and the DVR and all that kind of stuff. But TVs nowadays, if you want to get a big one, it's like $1,000 is that point. And I'm still, four figures is still enough for me to say, let's really research this. I can't just go buy a TV and then throw it away in two years because I bought the wrong one. I really want the right one. And wow, if this writer one is $1,200, am I really going to spend more than the $1,000 mental point that I have of, man, $1,000 for a TV? Right. What the hell? That's a lot of money. Anyway. <laughs> well, see, I, I, that's, that's the interesting thing, too, talking about people's conceptions with some other stuff. TVs are that way because I have seen 75-inch TVs for 350 bucks. People are like, oh, look, I got a 75-inch TV for 350 bucks. And before, this other one was 1200 And I'm like, that's because it's a better TV. This is the same size. There you go. Size doesn't ma always matter. But it, it, it's the hardware inside to stream that and, and create this on the screen and how well the picture, pixels light up and the brightness and the, you know. True black and yeah, motion yes. blur and all the various, because people use TVs not only for watching at movies it's also uh, what how about sports and how about playing video games and whatever else it might be and there's different factors that go in yeah right yeah. And, and people don't realize that you are getting what you pay for that's great you got a 75 inch tv but you're going to be complaining about it constantly because the scan rate isn't good enough and you're getting a headache watching it which exactly. doesn't really happen anymore we have to make analogies with old school technology it's it is i again shout out to consumer reports because even though i love going into the the high-end stereo and tv and just the device magazines, 
Consumer Reports does a really good job of saying, okay, so it's really interesting to know the specs, but for most people, what they care about, of course, is the user experience. And right. so one of the, out of the 100 factors I could cover, if I cover this dozen that really are the things that matter most for what a person's experience, what's the viewing angle and all that kind of stuff, I, Consumer Reports has guided me very well, not always about every computer, but about consumer devices, really good on cameras, really good on TVs, really good on, boy, cameras. Is anybody really buying a camera anymore? Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe the, the professionals with the was SLR, right? The, yeah. Know, the, so I haven't bought a new camera since my old Canon. It must be 20 years now. As soon as I got a smartphone, the convenience and the yeah. ever-increasing quality of a little pocket camera, it's really tough to justify having another device. I had a camera bag that I used to carry around with me, my little purse. I, any number of times when I was like an RG, it was like, okay, if I hang this off the back of the chair, I'm going to forget it. The ladies always complain about, so I'll put it in the center of the table. And of course, it's, what's that, Al? Is that your purse? And it's funny, I did use it as a purse. After you're carrying the bag anyway, because you wanted to have the extra memory cards and the extra batteries yeah. in case you needed those, let's pull through a few couple uh, pens in there and maybe some mad money. And how about a tampon? How about that? How is that? <laughs> Jack Bauer had a purse. But it was called a messenger bag. But if a Jack Bauer bag. can carry one. I I still, boy, this is two years out of date. When I used to go out to lunch regularly where I'd get my subway, I had a shoulder bag. Not a messenger. It, it really is. It's a tech bag from Microsoft. So you got it. One of the conferences that I went to, and it was designed to house like the perfect laptop size. But now it's mostly magazines and front pouch. So you can put your pens and your keys and whatever else you might be. And I don't know. What am I really concerned about? Someone telling me that I'm, uh, oh no, the dreaded homosexual because I'm carrying a very convenient messenger bag at age 62. I, I'm sorry that I'm prancing around with my, it's so, it's so, boy, has that been ridiculous? Like we just watched an Eddie Murphy special and not only him, but Sam Kinison, various others really had problems in their careers because Basically. they made a lot of fun of fags. And nowadays, it just seems, boy, that, is there anything that dates a comedy special more yes. than that being uh, <laughs> something to make fun of, an issue? Right. Okay. And I guess, I don't know, I'm not trying to be too preachy here. There really are stereotypes are funny. Making fun of stereotypes is funny. And it depends on, is it affectionate or is it mean? Is it too yes. broad or is it? True. You know what I mean? If someone was, if you make a reference to someone who's just on TV at the gay pride parade, looking very gay, then everybody has seen that image. And so you can say, remember this, but instead of it just being that broad, I don't know, it's a, it's, do you really hate them that much that you're going to make fun in every way that you possibly can? I don't know. I'm glad that's a lot gone. Let's put it that way. Or that the people that are still like that, it's like, man, you really are the asshole you always have been, but now you can't hide because other people think it's funny too. Right. Oh, it you're just such an ass. <laughs> and I do like how making fun of the, the minority stereotypes has gone away quite a bit. For the tech and nerds, it's embraced a lot more. People aren't laughed at because they like they, superheroes, because everybody likes the superheroes now. And Big right. Bang Theory, I think, had a lot to do with that because it was so popular. Whether you like the show or not, yeah, they saw these nerds and they grew to like them, helped, I would say. But then the other thing is... It, Okay, here's a great example. I'll throw his name out. I hope he doesn't want to come and kill me. But if I'm hanging out with Marty or Paul and we're playing a game or something, right. I'll, I'll th say, yeah, of course you would understand that because you're gay. And I'm picking on him and we're laughing, but he knows I'm not being mean. 
But to an outsider, they I've had this happen where they're like in your face. That's insult. He's my friend. We were picking on each other the same way I would pick on Al for being bald or something. Exactly. You know, it's 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 just back and forth. (laughs) And I've said that before too. I think the rest of the world is catching up to the nerds that played D and D in the seventies because. We would play women. We'd play green skin creatures. We would watch Star Trek with the first interracial kiss. We were used to all this stuff. So I, literally in my family, at times, my mother used to do wedding cakes and she had a really good friend at work that was getting married. She wanted to make a wedding cake. So my mother went to the store and grabbed all the supplies like she does, made the cake and took it in. She wasn't being insulting. She wasn't doing anything bad. She just grabbed all the stuff she normally grabs which included the white bride and groom to put on the cake for the black couple. She never even thought about it, it never even noticed. And it wasn't an insulting thing. She just never thought of her friend as black. She just thought of her as a friend. And I had this about seven, eight years ago, a group we used to get together on the first Friday of the month and play board games and everything. We loved it, made some good friends and had a good time. And I knew this guy for five years and we're sitting there and I'm sitting next to him and we're playing and somebody said something about his move. He's like, you can just kiss my black ass. And I stopped and looked at him and said, Mikey, you're black. <laughs> and he looks at me and says, yeah, I am. I'm like, I just realized that. I mean, yeah, honestly. Yeah. When did that start? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and everybody laughed at me and I wasn't trying to make a joke and I wasn't trying to be funny or insulting. It was literally a light bulb moment that I was like, oh, my God, he is black, isn't he? I didn't even realize it. (laughs) Good for you. Good for him. That's always what I hope for. Friends get to, like, tease each other on everything under the sun. And and sometimes to the outsider, it can look like, oh, my God, that's gone too far. No, we've known each other for 40 years. There's no whatever boundaries other people think. You you shed those when it's just, I don't know, I I hope the whole world will get to that. We, it sure seems we've gotten to where some people, when they know their time is changing, they don't embrace the new. They dig their heels in all the more. And so we'll have to see how long it takes before just generationally, generationally, sorry, extra syllable, how, how long it'll be before that goes away. You know what I mean? I just, this is, boy, this is silly. I play hearts occasionally online and some people are chatty and, and some people are mean chatty. And so I hardly ever do these kinds of things, but one guy's name was Old Dude. And so when he wouldn't let up with my gentle rejoinder of, well, you should see my car, that he was worried about why I hadn't played exactly what he thought I should play. And after a while, it was like, well, maybe you need to take your pills, Grandpa. Maybe you need, I, do you need changing? You know what I mean? He was being so irascible that I was like, oh, I'm going to just embrace the stereotype. He used it himself, Old Dude. And I hardly ever do that. But and I wasn't even honestly necessarily trying to insult him. I was trying to get laughs from the other players because they could see what an unreasonable jerk he was being. And then I was actually handling it for the first two, three, four rejoinders. And then it was like, sometimes people insist on climbing all the way to the top of Mount Asshole. And you've done it. And so now you get both barrels. I was being gentle and decent and we're just playing cards. What the hell is wrong with you? No, after a while, they deserve the worst things that I could say. You know what I mean? And, and it's, I, I don't know, it's for me too. I get to get rid of a little tension because what a jerk. Right. <laughs> My attitude towards playing games is if I am not in the grandmaster chess championship 
against <laughs> Big Blue or Chris Bursnick, whatever his name was. Right, it's wrong. just casually for fun, folks. <laughs> it's going to be forgotten at out of the other hundreds of games I will play in the next year or so. Yeah. Relax. <laughs> Boy, I'll, I'll say this all elusive. Long ago, at we go to a thing called Mind Game. Mensa mm-hmm. runs a cool event that everybody does play testing of, wow, 60 to 100 games. And then from that emerge the Mensa Select games for that year. And that's often then what guides, hey, what should I get my friends for Christmas? What should I get for my Here, Here's the list of 10. <laughs> here's the list of 10. And, but at that, boy, it really is a, just an immersion in psychology. You can tell the people that are, that matters a lot to them that they win. It matters a lot to them that people follow the rules. If they don't think they're going to win, all of a sudden they like stop paying attention. And they, I, there's all kinds of weird psychology going on there. And there was one woman that I played with that was, really nasty far more than what befit people playing a game together and so in your mind you're just like i'll just no remember not to get on my get on her bad side i don't really care what she thinks of me but like why should i cause that discomfort for others 15 years later probably that woman did similar things online and it was like reliance tigers really don't change their stripes do they that's her gambit if i could be the most unreasonable person in the room People will just back off and let me have my way because they don't want to fight. And in this case, it was, I just have knowledge of her. That doesn't work with her. And so I didn't lay into her, but it definitely was everything that she was saying. I was happy because I'm a smart guy to point out how it made no rational, logical, factual sense. One of those. All about her, not about me. That the things that she was demanding are like, that's a ridiculous demand. Are you bullying me? And it, it's weird to get to that place of, I didn't mean to store that away as being ammunition, but there really are people that once they learn a trick, they might be a one trick pony. They learn that if you're an ass, you get your way more often than not. I just didn't feel like being the person that knuckled under to the asshole that. Right. Day. Oh, and, you know what and, I mean? But gaming really is, for, it has always been to me, I can learn more from gaming with a person for an hour than if I talk to them for five. Right. You know what I mean? Parts of their personality come out. Do they want to build and work together or are they solo? Or do they actively like if you do I'm going to win regardless? Expense, <laughs> the whole rest of the game doesn't matter. Now all that matters is they have to get revenge on. Wow. Wow. And the funny That's thing is <laughs> the focus of mind games is not to play games and win because they don't say, here's the oh. champion of the weekend who won the most games. The focus is on playing these games to get a good review of them and helping the organization. It doesn't matter who wins. You're trying to figure out the rules and the playability and what works with different groups of people. So who cares who wins? That's not the focus. Thank you for mentioning that. Because I don't want the world to think that mind games is that some kind of decathlon of gaming that we're all that we're all vying for or commenting on. Well, were the rules good? Did did, were I was I able to understand and get up and running quickly? What's the quality of the material? What's the game flow like? Does it have replayability? All of that is cool. And in fact, that's even more damning than for people that can't have a good time at this event. If anytime you're gaming, you're hyper competitive. Anytime you're gaming, you're looking to be not only the one that understands the rules, but to be the one that can thump the rules Bible and say, sinner, it's in people's personality. You know what I mean? They can't turn that off as easily. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm going to switch topics real quick uh, for this. This past week, we unfortunately lost a great musician, Meatloaf, one of my favorites. Hats off to him. If you haven't listened to Meatloaf in a while, go do. Exactly. I'll tell you, I I made a little comment on this. You know, that Bad Out of Hell album is one of those perfect albums. There's not a bad cut on it. The emotions of it, the lyrics, the musicianship of it. It's not just Meatloaf. 
Todd Rundgren, Hazen Sultan, Roy Bitten, the E Street Band, Max Weinberg. There's so many Steinman. great people out there. And the big thing to mention about Meatloaf is Jim Steinman was his muse. He's the one that wrote all these songs, and he wrote all kinds of other great operatic, bombastic rock and roll for Bonnie Tyler, right? Multiple yeah. people that benefited. The Streets of Fire movie, the soundtrack is by Jim Steinman, and you can tell. It's all, where are the fire pots? Where's the big climax to this song? You know what I mean? Ellen Abe is, is you know, female meatloaf, if you will. And so when Meatloaf and Jim had a falling out and we didn't work together for a number of years, Meatloaf's albums were still okay. There were occasional good things and his voice was still the monster that it was, but only until they gathered for Bat Out of Hell 2 and 3 did that magic return. Yeah. And so for, I don't know, for me as a fan and for many people that I've talked to about it, it really is all that lost time, man. If they would have found, they wouldn't have had a falling out. We could have just had this whole incredible catalog of great bombastic opera rock and instead we get three albums maybe a taste of it Jim Simon also had a solo album called Bad for Good that is really good if you want to give it a listen to and, and that kind okay. of stuff but my my meatloaf concert experience I hope you oh, saw him live I never it was that. as all giving as sweaty as like he had like, remember when they used to do the thing with James Brown where they'd yeah. like he'd be just falling apart on stage and and <laughs> Weird Al parodied that. Exactly. And <laughs> Meatloaf does, did that. He was all in by the end. You know what I mean? And he would actually... He's a, a big guy. Their voices. They, he would sing the high notes, sing those harsh on the throat notes, and I don't know how he recovered by the next day. A lot of tea and honey, uh, whatever he did, that he had that set of pipes that also could recover from the beating that he gave them. Yeah. He sang hard. I don't know. I really... When I put on that Bed Out of Hell album, I know I'm going to have a great time for an hour. Yeah. Every song is great. The lyric of her crying it is. Out. It's oh, one of those man. albums that you can't just <laughs> pick one or two hits and the rest is garbage. Every song. I didn't know any of those songs. So yeah. the album is the album to me. And yes, Paradise by the Dashboard Lights, I've heard way more on the radio, but I hear the other ones. And right, right. to me, it's a lot just of free ain't bad. Exactly. Yeah, the, the whole of... album, the, the part where he, would you offer your throat to the wolf under the pail? And he goes, yeah, I bet you say that to all exactly. of them. <laughs> yeah, you know? And that's what I loved about it because it's humorous metal. It, it's good, hard rock metal. And then it's got a little bit of twisted puns in the lyrics. And exactly. you know, it's wonderful. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yes. Hats off to him. There's cool, weird Al news. Yes. The, from what I understand, they're doing a biopic of him because he's also got like a, he's got a fantastic career, right? He's been around since the late 70s, I guess, on Dr. Demento at first singles, then compiling into albums and all manner of just how many great parodies, how many things were the parody is better than the song. Like his band able to play everything so authentically. In the same so band. Positively, exactly the same night. So uh, it's uh, Harry Potter, correct? It's yes. Radcliffe is going to yes. Play. Weird Al, and I, he must be a big fan. He must be like, if that role is available, agent, put me up for it because I would love to be where that's going to be very cool. You know, I read a couple of bios of him, either one auto and one about him, and he really did have a very interesting life. I mean, he's a very smart guy. He was about oriented. Yeah. You know what I mean? He, his career hasn't always been great. There was a time when his style of parody had the albums were selling less and less, and then he had a breakthrough. What was it with? The last Never two, mind, right? What, what, sorry. The, oh yeah, in the nineties, that he, one he came out with. Uh, you know, Kurt Cobain of of uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit instead of, and it's 
And, and MTV-wise, he was able to embrace that because his concerts, man, he was one of the hardest working men in rock and roll. If you're going to do parodies of various different songs and you really want to capture it, you got to go and change into oh, the concert. Like you got to go and change into Amish garb for he did. and and he had the fat suit for yeah. fat and stuff like that. So seeing that he really put on a show and he has, the music, energy. he has energy. I, I've, I've seen him multiple times. I took my kids at least once. Me and Colin are going to this next one, but he has so much energy. He changes costumes, great musicianship, and yes. they do things on stage that are just fun and funny. And I've never been to a show except Weird Al where you can have a, a 10 year old screaming their guts out in front of you and have a 90 year old lady with a walker going down to the front row. Uh, also you know, loving him. Yes. Yeah. And I, I've loved him forever. I've got cassettes of the first three albums. Actually, the first album I've got LP original. <laughs> and then the next two, I got cassette. And there was a book that came out at that time autobiography and i've got that and you can't find it anywhere i i don't even see it on amazon or ebay most of the time so yeah, very prized possession <laughs> absolutely so a couple quick things i do have his permanent record box set which is a great one because it has so much of his good stuff i was an idiot and just at the time i didn't have the money he has a box set that came out since then that's in the accordion, accordion. and i don't have it and honestly i i have many box sets and this is the one that i most regret why didn't I find the money? Why didn't right. I strike when the iron was hot? There's a gentle giant box set that's like that too. It's 30 CDs and it could be everything I ever wanted. And now if I find it, it's not 50 bucks, it's $500. Right. I'm a collector's item and I don't know that I'll ever get a chance to get my hands on. But having said that, another couple of quick, I remember going to, I lived in Chicago for a long time, used to go up to Milwaukee for Summerfest. They always had great band lineups and, and all the like the festival things to do. I can go get an elephant here with the least nutritious thing in the whole place. I can get one of those. I went to see George Thorogood, who I love, and totally sweated it up, enjoying all of his just bar brand rock and roll. And then I went to see Red Al Yankovic that same night, and he blew George Thorogood away. Wow. And I love George Thorogood. And yet that was the first time that I saw Weird Al. And I was like, there's this is the biggest show I've ever seen where it really isn't just standing on and maybe there's some yes. laser lights while you're playing songs. He was a Hollywood act. He was just so accomplished and doing his like Ian Anderson on one leg flute solo. So instead it was him was like one leg behind his neck playing the accordion, the stomach sideway as Colleen likes to call yes. it. And just, I was he smiling, is looking around, everybody smiling, laughing their asses off, having a great time. I, I would say for entertainment concert, Weird Al is definitely on the same level as Barry Manilow. Uh, Barry Manilow is such a performer, such a, a professional. I've seen him three times. Every show was completely different. One time was wow. with a big band. One time was just him and a small quartet and he played piano. And then one time was like big show stuff. And he did the weird out thing where he changed costumes and he did. Yeah, yeah. So every single one was different. And those are fun. I've seen Guns N' Roses and Metallica. And those shows suck compared to these because <laughs> it's them standing on stage playing and maybe running to the corner to scream. And, right. and it's just like I a big put video it, backdrop and a lot of explosions yeah. and lights, but it isn't the showmanship, if you will. And I really yeah. like when they do shows and play the music, but it's altered or changed or they do something different. Not yeah. just here's the album cut. Okay, next song. 
it's right. You know, I get if so, I see the drummer listening to a click track so that it'll be precise. It's like, that's not what I want. I want you guys to stretch out. I yeah. want you to play the music, not recreate the album. If you know right. what I'm trying to say. Yes, you know absolutely. I mean? so, very good. And Daniel Radcliffe, I think is so, like you said, I'm betting he jumped on this. He had something to do with getting it pushed forward. Ever since Harry Potter, he definitely doesn't rest on his, hey, I'm a kid actor that everybody knows. He's done some wacky, wild stuff, and he can do whatever he wants. Yeah, so, he really does seem to be one of those guys. I've heard an actor or an actress say something like, what roles do you take on? Things that scare me. Things that they're not sure they can do, that they're not sure they're right for it, but they want to be always expanding, learning, doing something new. And he definitely has made very interesting yeah. choices as to what he's got involved. In. And he's still young. He's what, early yeah. 30s now. And you don't hear him on TMZ with getting drunk or beating somebody up or crashing his $500,000 car. Exactly. He really does seem to be an artist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like really enjoying his stuff and, and thanking the universe for thanks for this chance. I, so I'm looking forward to that. At that at get segue time. Helene and I, we really love documentaries. Besides, of course, we love fiction, but it's really cool. The, the way the world is now is that they're doing a lot of good documentaries about, oh man, before we lose this person, let's yeah. make sure that we capture all about Ella Fitzgerald, all about David Foster. We just saw a great David Foster one, Ella as well. We just saw Clive Davis. And the reason that someone like David Foster has worked with all kinds of great people. So while you're watching it, you're like this wonderful nostalgia boat of, I remember when that came out. I remember how that was like, what a breakthrough that was, that what a great voice, no wonder he said, I have to work with her because I, I need to be in her life. I need to like, there are some people that are Bengali about that kind of stuff, but instead they really seem to be enablers and that they just want to be, Clive Davis was really good at the man with the golden ears, picking out the songs, the, the perfect person to sing a song. He'd match people. He's the one that says, Santana, you've had a wonderful career, but if you really want to rev it up again, because your record sales are also falling off, we need to get you in with some of these young vocalists you on your fantastic guitar work, but a little bit of, and so the Supernatural came, album came out, remember? And it's 10 different guest vocalists, and like seven of them made it into the top 10 because they, the songs are different, sounds and textures and so forth because yeah. of the various different vocalists. But man, having the whole world become aware of that Santana guitar again was fantastic. He's one of the best guitarists of all time. So I, I love those kinds of things where it's, wow, I didn't know he was involved in that. Sometimes it's not a retreading of things I already knew. It was like, Huh, that's where that came from. They were at a party together, said, hey, we should work together. Instead of that just being a pleasantry, they went into the studio and produced the album of the year. <laughs> and you said you watched the ZZ Top documentary. And yes. I had a musician. That's what I heard. I had a musician friend uh, that said, hey, I just watched the ZZ Top documentary. It was awesome. So I haven't watched it yet, but it's been on my list. And it's funny because I like ZZ Top, that bluesy Southern rock feel. Exactly. But I've had several people who have seen them in concert say that they're really boring, that they just stand on stage, play the songs, and they move on. And they don't not even talk, the twirling. <laughs> not like the videos in the 80s. But I heard the documentary was great. <laughs> yeah. What's funny, I, I love this. Other people are accomplished artists because they have great songs and they have good selling albums and stuff. But to hear them be, articulate about their music and why they love playing it and also other people's music that they like or what who they call their their predecessors who were their influencers and stuff like that they have great interviews with all three members of the band as to what was going on while you were doing this you know what what were the and, and not only in a kind of a hysterical high points and low points 
it was they were very hopeful about how they talked about who knew it would turn into this, who knew that we would have this ongoing, they're like longest running trio, 50 years, long as Rush, longer than Rush, longer than ELP, two out of three ELP are dead. Only Billy Gibbons, unfortunately, I think is now gone. And But it just was, I really like their music and I have, it, it was fun to see how level-headed they remained. It wasn't like, hey, last album didn't sell as well as the previous one. Time to drop into drugs. And Frank Beard might have had a little bit of a problem for a while with that. What do you do when you have 22 hours out of the day that you're not rocking? Maybe a little bit too much drinking, drugging, whatever. But he also had the the fortitude to pull himself back from that. (laughs) Say, do I love drugs more than I love playing with my best friends? Do I love that more than creating this beautiful music? No. So it's a tale of triumph. And, but that isn't even the focus of the, of the movie, is he made it back. It was just one of the things it's that like they had to happened, make it. Yeah. So it really is fun to go back to those Tres Hombres, and they have great albums. And then the MTV world of who knew that ZZ Top would be an MTV-able thing. Right. I would have thought that they were just like, they're on stage, and they might have a buffalo and a vulture with them, because that was their Texas, the little old band from Texas. Right. And yet they had... They hooked up with the right producers and stuff like that to have these cool visions of the Eliminator car and yeah. the, the beautiful ladies that are giving a young guy a break. And it just, I don't know, man. I They have a whole bunch of in the right place at the right time, but they didn't even really know that at the time. They were incredibly lucky, but weren't jerks about how lucky they were. They were like, isn't this fun? Isn't this cool? Let's sell, a, let's make you know, a multi-platinum album out of, it's, he's got legs. And Sharp Dressed Man. And yeah, I could be wrong. I'll have to look this up uh, yeah. later. But I think Mutt Lang was involved with Eliminator. We talked about him a couple weeks ago. That might be. Maybe. I, no, I, I, couldn't I, find could, it. Doesn't, I don't remember that name specifically being yeah. mentioned. But they have worked with, like, sometimes just that a producer will show up and say, David Foster worked with Celine Dion. You know what I mean? Right. And, and whatever it was that he discovered her relatively early. And so he then really, her remember, her husband slash manager slash Bengali really was then for the next kind of 30 years in her life. And I think that he died. And so she's starting a new course in her life. But that it, I love when you hear artists talk about other artists in a way of, of respect. And I wish I had that voice. I wish I could do what they do. You know what I mean? That they're still, they, they just had some segment. Stephen Colbert does a thing he calls the questionnaire, ERT, because it's Colbert. And he just asked, did we, did we already talk about this? I no. lose track from week to week. Keanu Reeves, like, who have you asked for an autograph? Oh, it's like Keanu's like very recognizable. The whole world loves him, et cetera, et cetera. And if I remember right, one of them was George Carlin. That he like, he's not known for being a funny guy. Maybe Bill and Ted are funny movies, but that's the guy that he just so much loved his work. And it was on the set of one of the Bill and Ted movies. So it's a little bit weird to be like, what a star and you're the secondary, but I really would love your autograph, sir, because you shaped me as a human being. Right. And I, that's cool to hear who are the people like, who are you happy to meet? You know what I mean? Who right. are you happy to do a duet with? It's it's very cool to see that mutual appreciation. If you will, you know? I, I so, remember one of the behind the scenes on uh, The Force Awakens when that movie came out and right. they showed John Boyega showing up on set with a 12 inch Han Solo doll and like begging Harrison Ford to sign it. And Harrison Ford has always hated that. He's never gotten into it. Didn't want to do it. And he's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? He was like, oh, please. Exactly. I mean, where's your Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I should mention the other guy so that we won't get all the, it, 
we could get, we could generate traffic on the net by who was the other guy was Lou Reed for Keanu Reed. Oh, Lou Reed from, you know, Velvet Underground and stuff. And just what, what fine, interesting choices for people that really are oneers. There's nobody else that does stuff like they do. And that they, I can see how they're formative and what Keanu has done with his life. I'm sorry, Mr. Reed, you know, I shouldn't, someone, someone just asked a question online. So what famous people have you ever talked to? And honestly, it was so easy for me to say, talk to Stan Lee. I've talked to Rick Wakeman. I've talked, I had a list of 10 and I didn't have to stop, but I just stopped because it seemed a little bit like a stalker, but it really was. My interests are so wide and I've been the kind of things you go to. It's not like going to a Hollywood premiere where you're not allowed to go on the red carpet. When you go to a Comic-Con, Stan Lee's right there. So is Ray Bradbury. So are the giants of the comic book or the movie industry. And so I was just, I got a chance to talk to Buzz Aldrin because he was at a Mensa meeting. You know what I mean? It's just really cool to have had these opportunities. So I guess that's my, kind of, I don't know that it's mutual appreciation. They don't know me from Adam, but it's very nice to be able to say, yeah. man, love your work. Love how much you've added to my life, how you've formed me as a human being. I just, it's very nice to have a chance to say that, especially before we lose people. Stan's now gone. And so I'm very happy that I had a chance to say, man, I, your worldview really, besides my parents, is one of my biggest influences of superhero and responsibility right. and things like that. So very cool to, to hear other people have that, even big stars themselves. <laughs> and you mentioned Lou Reed, that album escapes me, the one with Dirty Boulevard. A friend of mine played that album for me and that song particularly. And it was so different for me at the time, young 13 or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And his music was just unapologetic. You hear that thrown around at times. But it, it really was. He didn't try and fit in any style. He didn't try and be the, the big mega star. And, but those kind of musicians in the know, people of yeah. discerning tastes, gravitated toward a lot of his stuff. One this this quote is appropriate for him. Someone once said about, I think about Lou Reed, that it was, he might not be everybody's favorite artist, but he's the guy that formed more other bands than anybody else, that, that caused other bands to form. That people listened to Lou Reed and said, I need to do this. I got something to say. I mean, like his music is not so complex that I have to become a virtuoso. But just that, how many people heard him? Call my three best friends. At this point, we're a band and we're going to get a gig. You know what I mean? It's, it's <laughs> kind of like uh, Happy Days with all the offshoot TV shows. Well, I guess like that. Exactly. Some people are the progenitors. Even if they, I'm sure that Lou didn't intend to be that person. But what you just said, unapologetic, authentic. You know what I mean? Like, that the whole point of punk in so many ways was, yeah, anybody can do this. You know what I mean? I have a, a good friend, Greg, that we often, because frog and punk are almost like opposite ends of the spectrum, though not really, because Robert Fripp has a foot in both hands, if you will. <laughs> but it's very cool to hear that idea of authenticity and is still an important thing. It's not a matter of virtuoso musicianship, but it really is. Do, do I think they're just going through the motions or is this something that they created music that I don't care what the rest of the world thinks of it? I had to do this. I had to get it out of me. I had to make this thing exist. And that's a very a common thing in both of those very disparate camps. And I think that there's a lot of that. You know, selling out is, was one of the biggest insults that you could give to any punk person. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, I'm hearing your song selling Cadillacs. What the hell happened to you, Johnny? You know what I mean? You can't have the Sex Pistols become an institution. You have to have them always be the rebel. So. The, the Sex Pistols, <laughs> mentioning documentaries and stuff. And I don't think it was a full Sex Pistols documentary, but they 
really essentially were the punk boy band. They were formed with the thought in mind of being the rebels, the punks and all right. that. And Malcolm McLaren, he was there kind of. Is that who it was behind the scenes? Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. cause even Johnny Rotten, that was his stage persona, just like Alice Cooper. He, he, I remember hearing a Alice Cooper interview. He's sitting in the interview, no makeup and stuff. And he, he looks scary enough on his own. So that's okay. <laughs> but he's saying his people just don't get it that this is a performance. This is my stage persona. It's not who I am in real life. He's all have people like I'll wake up in the morning and there's a group of people camping on my front lawn all in full makeup. And I come out with a cup of coffee and a bathrobe. They're like, we're here to see Alice Cooper. He's like, yeah, get off my lawn. <laughs> they, they think he dresses like that. But that's how the Sex Pistols started out, really, because, oh, man, I, I, I don't remember where it was I read or a uh, show or whatever, but he did other music uh, totally different than that, because that was just I'm making money and having fun, really. And this right. is the job. So I hear you. That, there's any number of bands that doesn't, doesn't even take makeup, Alice Cooper or Kiss. There's any number of people that, well, I don't know, didn't Garth Brooks become another persona because he wanted to create rock and the country straight jacket of being Garth Brooks was so tight. What was the name of the guy? He had, that, yes. He had, and it didn't sell at all it didn't because people felt betrayed instead of, well, let him go experiment. So some people get away with it because they really do hide themselves in another group. David Bowie, as much as he was David Bowie, you know, marquee name, he went and did Hit Machine for half a dozen albums because he wanted to be in a band, not him being only the songwriter, the, the guy right. who controlled everything. That's some and, weird stuff. Yeah. I love it. Oh, it, yeah, it, I've got, yeah, I've got it, it, it. It really is. I put that on when if I haven't heard this in a while and I'm going to be surprised, even though I've already heard it. Because oh, yeah. there's a whole bunch of cool, weird things going on. Because it's not like earwigs that you just hum and sing to yourself. Right, Another band, the, the, the guitarist was really interesting and experimental, yes. if I remember right. So anyway, go ahead. Another band I discovered, very similar, was Stuart Copeland, drummer from The Police, sure. and bassist, a really famous jazz bassist, which of course is escaping me at the moment. I'll okay. look it up, put it in the show notes. <laughs> but And then the, a female singer, and they formed a group called Animal Logic. And I, I got one, it. Yes. And just some wonderful stuff. The The Thing is, they have, I don't know if they don't have the license or whatever, but the original album did not get into today's world. So you can't buy it anywhere on digital. You can only buy old used CDs. So the band actually got together and re-recorded the whole album and put it back out. It's a re-record, remaster or something like that. That's funny. But it's weird. It's one of those things like you hear those bands that redo old 25-year-old songs and you're waiting for certain beats in the tune, certain notes, how they hit it, the, the, right. the, the on the guitar and the, the catch in the throat or whatever. And it's not the same. So it, it sounds off. <laughs> yeah. You know, what, a, what a sad testament to the rapacious nature of the music industry that certain artists, even really big ones like Taylor Swift, have had to re-record their material to reclaim it. That yeah. they were young and signed a bad contract and now they're in somebody else's clutches. Nope. I found a way out. All I got to do is remake this album and I reown my material, this version of it. Maybe that's why it's slightly different. They have to make it a different enough version so that it's new and that maybe somebody else would want to buy it, not only in support of them, but because there's additional cuts or whatever. But that's not a, an uncommon story. Now. 
Yeah. That people Def are Leopard redoing things. Exactly. How weird is that? Oh. All right. Well, we've been going, but before we go, you mentioned that the F. Paul Wilson. It's funny. I was talking to somebody else on an interview Sunday for Discovered Wordsmith. And he mentioned one of his favorite authors is F. Paul Wilson. And I, so I was like, oh, just talking about that. And you said the third book gets even better. Yeah. So a bunch of things here. One of the reasons I've always loved F. Paul Wilson is, like I mentioned, he did the Repairman Jack books and the Adversary Cycle. And there's a whole bunch of cool stuff going on with personal relationships, as well as this big backdrop of cosmic forces that are, you know, good and evil or dark and light or whatever you want to call them. This series, the ICE, and ICE stands for Intrusive Cosmic Entities. And so they're, they're, they, one of the theories of the, one of the protagonists, Rick Hayden, in the book is that there really are big things out there, and they just do things to screw with humanity like we're an experiment. Like, how about if I make something that's unnatural exist in this world, and then how will people react to it? Will they understand it? Will they try to control it? Will they be afraid of it? Whatever else it might be. And so these books have been relatively good. The first two were at, at introducing some of those things. In one case, it's it's the book is called Panacea. It's that cure-all that really does cure any disease in ways that modern science, medicine cannot explain. And yet what impact would that have? Who would try to control it? What, what of the people that get miraculously cured, are they going to be almost hounded for, show me how you did that so that we can also cure multiple sclerosis or whatever else it might be? Um, the third book is, is called The Void Protocol. And Another thing that's great about F. Paul Wilson is he's really good at being able to shift perspective that like while you're you're in the heads, um, you listen to the dialogue between the two main protagonists, and then the people that are trying to pursue them and catch them, he'll switch to them and actually from their point of view. So there's that first, second, third person thing, not only always from the main character in the book, but from other people like where would I look for them to find them? What will I do with them when I catch them? And like that little bit of getting into people's heads and emotions and fears and triumphs and failures, it really is very cool to give all those different perspectives, especially he's really good at five different forces are coming together. And by giving you the perspective of here's the, the victim, here's the pursuer, here's the cop, here's the, it's really cool to have like, like Rashomon, where you see the same events from multiple different viewpoints. He's really good at building that up into this really good, tense collision of all those things. So I really like him for that. And this third book in introduces the idea of there's a, a substance that doesn't obey the laws of physics and scientists can't leave well enough alone. And they start, we measure it and it doesn't weigh anything, but it does move. But, and they actually, and this is just like what they injected into moms, pregnant moms to see what it's going to do to their kids. It's going to make them smarter. Is it going to make them, and at first they think that's what it's going to be, that it's going to be a matter of hyper-intelligence. They track the kids. No, they're not doing any different in school. Oh, failed experiment. And as you know, there's sadly uh, precedence for the Tuskegee Airmen or whatever else it might be that were experimented on without their knowledge. And what, who, what corporation, what governmental body, who would do this kind of evil stuff? Ex-Nazi scientists, that's a good start. And then, but then as it turns out, that as they get to puberty, what other chemicals ages are going on in their body or go through stressful things, and that's a time-honored superhero trope of, you don't know your power until it really matters. You got to fight for your life or save somebody else's. And so now they're exhibiting extraordinary power. What an interesting tie into Fringe, which I just recommended because I'm just lapping it up like cream. Uh, yeah. So very cool about what if these things really did happen, that there was a little bit of telekinesis and a little bit of like teleportation or whatever else it might be. That's what's happening now is there's a whole bunch of adolescents and maybe young adults who all have... Um, 
their own personal issues, passions, or whatever else it might be, but now they're exhibiting these powers, and are they going to benefit from it, or is the government going to take them and make them into a military force, or is a, a, a scientist now, the scientists that experimented on them that thought, what a, a blown possibility, now they're realizing, wow, there really is something there, I better go capture them, I really want to find out what happened, and it's really a good pressure cooker, it's got a great set, it like moves around, so there's great descriptions of various different places of course the bunker under the pine barrens in in west virginia it i just it's a page turner one of those things that like every time i'm reading at night and when i get to where okay i just realized that i didn't remember what i just read so time to go to sleep oh but i'm really in a good part brain why are you copping out on me now <laughs> so highest recommendation i really he's written things like nobody else has done f paul wilson i don't know that he's that claim in the science fiction fantasy urban fantasy uh horror like science horror thrillers type stuff i've actually he's not like 20 books out so he's had a good career he's got good best-selling books but you don't hear his name often mentioned in that pantheon of the stephen kings and the michael and whatever else but i i had i went and looked and several of the authors i've interviewed on my wordsmith podcast have mentioned him as one of their favorite authors So okay. there's is that enough people that know, That's and cool. I, okay. I'm definitely on my list short list of next books to buy. And speaking okay. of books to buy, our uh, friend uh, Bill Keith had another uh, book come out recently at uh, beginning of December. Yeah, it's funny uh, for those who are looking now for Bill Keith's books. He writes under um, a pseudonym mostly, multiple pseudonyms maybe, but like he's he's written wow fifty books, mostly are. What would you call it? Like military, exactly. Maybe some historic rejiggering, but really good stuff. I, boy, you know what? I'll have to. So when his next book or two come out, I'll have to mention something cool to okay. see if it really happens, because he just—he's a, a very dear friend. He and I have the same birthday. We've been through some of the same like atrial fibrillation. Every time, one of those guys that we didn't know each other from Adam at the first Mensa meeting we were at together. And yet you sit down and you just start talking and it's easy and you have so much in common and it's just a delight. So then after that, you seek out his company. Yeah. You know, instead of all the people you just say hi to away, I have my wonderful hour with Bill. And, and I think he thinks the same way of me, which is like, hats off. He's an accomplished author. And yet he wants to talk to me. How, yeah. how oh, that? He's you know what not I mean? pretentious at all. Not in at fact, all. my, my, yeah. my <laughs> best story with Bill is that when I first met him, so I had just gotten into Mensa. And part of the reason I wanted to even try was because my kids were not into scouts and I wanted some organization. And I'm like, okay, my cousins, Dan and Rob have gone to Mensa their whole lives and love it. So I got in and the very first thing I could find was the RG at Pennsylvania, but it was canceled. And they, and I went, oh crap. Then they decided to do it at Bill and Bria's house. They did a small little one. And I'm like, I, I emailed Bria and said, Hey, I'm new. I don't know you. Uh, I saw this was coming up and I'm really trying to get to an event. Can we come? And she's like, yeah, sure. So I'm like, okay, great. We're going to these people's houses for whatever an RG is. Cause I have no idea. Yeah, people like they could fit a lot of people there. So that's yeah. Where, so we're, we walk in and it was so funny because my kids walk in and they like, cause the walls are lined with books. Well, and then Bill's, oh, go ahead. If you want to read something, go ahead. And my kids, are you kidding me? I didn't see them for hours. They just explored. And so I, I hear Bill and this lady talking and I hear Stephen King 
And they mentioned a few things. I said, well, just to throw my two cents in. And I gave my opinion and thoughts and all this. And they're listening and on conversation. And then later, Paul was there and he says, hey, Bill's a famous author. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, he's written like 50 sci-fi books. He takes me around the corner. He's like, he's written all these. And I'm like, oh my God, this like full-time famous author. I just gave my author opinion and I haven't written anything. Yeah, but still, I think that he's hungry for that. He doesn't yeah. want people to fawn over him. He yeah. like, and if I, I wonder how many times he's had that wonderful fly on the wall conversation where people talk about him, that is his authorship of these various different books. And they don't know they're talking to the real author. Yeah. You know what I mean? So hopefully they love them, but there must be times where it's, well, I, I liked it, but I found it derivative. You know, they, <laughs> they go into that little authorly assholeness. Right. And I think that's very cool when you get a chance to get like a real opinion, the authenticity that we just talked about. Right. You know and, I mean? and I know when Colin went to school his freshman year, he started making friends. They called themselves the nerds of the round table um, <laughs> and they were just chatting. And these really were the top of the line nerds at the school. And this was a very sciencey, techy school with everybody really pushing themselves. And they're just chatting around and Colin goes, oh, yeah, there's this one author, Bill Keith. Yeah, I stayed at his house and two of these other kids like fell out. Of their they're like, oh, my God, he's one of my favorite authors. And they have every book. And they're like, oh, are you kidding me? Goes, yeah, I know. him. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I, just that. It's wonderful to have had this chance to make friends. Sometimes with, who knew that we would happen to be at the same table? And, and just that. Sometimes there's people like we've known each other forever, but we've only known each other for five minutes. It's right. very cool to have that wonderful initial report you know what i mean so yeah and real quick before we go we just finished the second season of the boys did you yes. watch all of that oh yeah they're great oh my god they're, they're great in the way of someone who really understands superheroes and if you want to push this as far as you can go if oh. you want to talk about where there really is superheroes are not necessarily mentally stable governments are not necessarily your friend etc cetera, etc cetera. corporations are getting their hands into everything and they want to own people and it speaks to all of them. Yeah. It speaks to that. Who's trying to do the right thing and is continually thwarted in doing it? Who's selling out a little bit at a time until they don't recognize who they've become? There's all kinds of great superhero celebrity crossover, if you will. Every episode, there was something that happened that just went over the line and took it way past the limit. Something. And exactly. it could have just been, sometimes it may have just been a sex scene. A lot of times it was something very destructive and it was like always just a whale incident. Oh my God. <laughs> and just every episode, there was something that Gina would hide her eyes and she's looking at me like, did that just really happen? And right. it's just crazy. And okay. So one of the actors in there was also on Supernatural, Jim Beaver. Yes. Uh, and the character he had on there was Robert Singer, who was one of the producers on Supernatural. And Jim Beaver's character on Supernatural was Bobby because of Robert Singer. They named, Robert. And they, yeah, they named Kripke because <laughs> Eric Kripke was part of both of them. Exactly. And exactly. I, this next season, we had to finish it up because in a few months, season three is coming with Jensen Eccles. <laughs> and speaking of tying it back to our earlier conversation, me and Gina have had an argument because we're not really sure if Jensen Eccles' car ever breaks down in front of our house who would fawn over him the most? We're not sure which one of us it would be. So I remember watching that show early and this is really cool, but it's going to be one of those syndicated. Maybe it'll make it three seasons and I'm going to be sad because all the plot lines are not going to get wrapped up. When I just recommended Fringe, that was somebody's first question was, 
does it come to a conclusion? Because there have been so many shows that were just like, man, they built this whole world and there were all these things going on. And then it just got dropped on the floor. Yeah. And so luckily, Fringe does come to a relatively satisfying conclusion as Supernatural went on far longer than anybody ever expected it would. Yes. Wasn't it like PBS or FX? I'm trying to think it was even like, if you will, a CW station. CW, exactly that. And so what a wonderful gold mine. These guys who are like, sounds like a pretty good show. I'll get a couple of good years out of this. I get to go be in the Pacific Northwest or wherever it was filmed. I think that's where it was. And instead it turned into career making. Well, cool. Well, you know? actually, because Kripke is from Toledo. So there's a oh. lot of Ohio references in there. And that's why the Impala most of the time has an Ohio license plate. Ohio in plate, yeah. Because it does, it helps to make things spookier if they're happening in the Midwest where it's nothing happens there. That's not a hotbed of psychic activity or a satanic activity right. or anything like that. All right. So, all right, man. Always a pleasure. We'll yes. see you in a week. That's, thank you for posting the last couple of things. Honestly, I think we're hitting our stride. These have been wonderful and informative and happy and fun. And I just, I really is it has been a pleasure been to work great. with you, Stephen. And it's a pleasure to do this every week. And, and we're our building next... a very cool thing here. This is a lot of good stuff. Nerds need to listen. Yeah. And, and we're, I've been looking into the t-shirt thing. Cause I also want to get t-shirts for, the horror podcast and have them online and link it all together. So it's, and it's just been one of those things that I'm like, okay, I take a few minutes and then something else happens, but I, I would love to be offering some nerd t-shirts. We need some merch. We got to yeah. have merch where when we make our, you know, when, if we're going to, Dayton is having an RG end of March. And if we want to do a simulcast there, depending yes. on Omicron and of course everything else, boy, if we had merch to offer at the table for the first time, that they would be, be sweet. flying off the well, show. We could well, get Relentless Geekery t-shirts at least. Exactly. And I don't know, just that that title, I stand by. That was a great title for even though it just popped out. I would wear that without having any context to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I am yeah. that guy. Relentless Geekery. That's what I, I want to do your other one. Omnivorous Nerdery or Omnivorous Nerd. <laughs> We, we we did have any number of other prospects, but some of them, they were just the right phrases for what yeah. we're trying to do here. We cover a lot of ground and, and delight in it. You know what I mean? Okay. Later. Bye-bye. Stay warm. <laughs> yeah. You have been listening to the Relentless Geekery Podcast. Come back next week and join Alan and Stephen's conversation on Geek Topics of the Week. <laughs>